And do take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, please. And chapter 15, we'll conclude that chapter and work through about uh, half of Acts 16 as we look at Paul's second missionary journey. And even as I speak these words, our friends Perry and Jennifer Westerman and Bob and Mary Jackson are tracing this route right now in Greece. So I texted Jennifer last night and I said, I'm going to be preaching about Lystra and Derby and Crete and Macedonia and where are you guys? And she said, we're at all those places right now. So you can give them a hard time for not bringing us along when they get back, I guess. Acts chapter 15 and verse 36 After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. This is referring to the letter that was written, and we looked at last week, Verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in number daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, 
If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As far the reading of God's word. Well, does your view of God permit, allow for surprises? Some people don't like surprises. They don't like being surprised at all. I think more accurate would be to say that none of us like surprises. None of us like being surprised. Maybe we don't mind a surprise birthday party, but what about being surprised by a cancer diagnosis or the sudden loss of a loved one or even something as innocuous as a passive-aggressive text from a co-worker with whom we thought we had a good relationship or being surprised by a light on the dashboard when we try to head out for work, running a few minutes late. Why don't we like these kinds of surprises? Well, the problem with things like medical diagnoses and um, car troubles or relational issues is that they're never figured into our plan, right? Not, not just for the day or the week, but much less even our life. Surprises like these, they don't just, they don't just rock our boats. Sometimes we feel like they rock our worlds. But when those moments come... It's a great way to test our view of God, what we actually think of him, what we actually believe about him. Because if you think that God has a great plan, the best plan, in fact, for your life, then even when a curveball comes your way, you won't be dismayed. But when you feel like your life is over and your world is crashing in, when the, the girlfriend breaks up with you, Suddenly, or the boss fires you, or your plans to get into the best school or college fall apart. When you feel like you you now have no hope, no future, that says something quite revealing about your view of God. You might not have realized it. Maybe you would never dare even say it. But when we get inordinately anxious or fearful or angry when things don't go our way, it means that we think that God is either dull or small. He's dull in that he doesn't know what we want, apparently, or maybe it's that he's small and that even if he knows what we want, he isn't strong enough to give it to us. But, friends, when you instead embrace the bigness of God, that he sees and he controls all, past present, and future, and when you embrace the brilliance of God, that he controls past, present, and future, not only for his glory, but even for your good, then that will change the way you handle surprises. Actually, it will change the way you view surprises, because now you'll recognize they come from God. Uh, The view of God that allows for surprises in life is the view that calls him the God of surprises. And he surprises us sometimes with distresses, things that we didn't want. But he also surprises us with delights. And those delights always outweigh the distresses. The God who might surprise us with some darkness is the God who can and will surprise us with a deliverance. And we see that in our passage today. There are four surprises that I have pulled out 
in terms of things that the Apostle Paul and the early church did not plan on, did not account for as they um, were getting ready for this next missionary journey. Four surprises. Two of them are very disappointing. But we'll see in the disappointment that the Lord surprises with two delights. And so, as we explore this text, we wanted to inform our understanding of who God is and how he works. I want you to get a big view of God. A God who is never surprised by anything, but in everything can surprise us with his wonderful providence. That's a good thing to learn today. So let's do that together. Let's learn what... The proverb means when it says that the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord is the one who establishes his steps. Well, back to chapter 15 and verse 36. Here's our first surprise, and it's a disappointment. The dream team is breaking up. Paul and Barnabas are about to head out on their second missionary journey. Paul plans to revisit all the cities that they previously, years earlier, had gone and established churches, and he wants to check on them to see how they're doing. And uh, a disagreement arises. Barnabas suggests that they take with them John Mark, who actually went with them on their first missionary journey. But we read in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, that he leaves, he departs the company really before. The, the mission itself ever actually begins. And in chapter 13, verse 13, Luke doesn't tell us anything about it. He just makes a statement, Mark left, John Mark left. But uh, apparently the way that Paul reacts, Paul's hesitancy to the suggestion that he come along again, suggests that he left for not a good reason. Maybe he, he didn't feel like he could handle the, the persecution that would be inevitable, the suffering that would be inevitable in this uh, missionary journey. But the disagreement that these brothers have here is major. The word that's translated sharp in the ESV, uh, verse 39, there arose a sharp disagreement, means almost something like explosive. And really that's what happens. Their their relationship explodes here. It, It ruptures. These two brothers, think about it. Two brothers must have become so close, uh, traveling together for years in the ancient world, you know, on foot, sleeping out, out in the wilderness at night and, and um, facing several near-death experiences. They, they weathered all of that. They must have grown so close. It would have had to have been an explosive disagreement to split them up. And yet sin has a way of infiltrating all of that. And I think we do want to say that sin plays a part And what happens here? Barnabas wants to give John Mark a second chance. Paul thinks that that's unwise. Neither of those um, options, those viewpoints, are sinful in and of themselves. But the fact that neither party, Paul or Barnabas, is willing to compromise reveals a stubbornness, maybe even a self-centeredness, and a selfishness. That is not honoring to the Lord. This is what R.C. Sproul reminds us. He says, although the Bible tells us what the apostles did in various circumstances, this does not mean the apostles are perfect models for our behavior. The Bible, not the apostles themselves, is infallible. Or we could maybe put it this way, that 
The apostles' message was infallible and perfect. The gospel of Jesus, that's infallible. The apostles' message is infallible, but not always their ministry, not always their approach. And so they refuse to cooperate with one another, and it poses a serious threat to the, the mission of this early church. Praise God that the mission is always his. It's not Paul's. It's not Barnabas's. It's not yours or mine. And so that even when we do sin, and we will sin, even if we make mistakes, and we will make mistakes in fulfilling our calling to serve the Lord, even when we do so, the mission is actually never truly threatened. It will always get the ultimate victory. And here comes the second surprise, in that what happens as a result of this explosive mess isn't that the mission tanks, it actually multiplies. That's the second surprise. The mission multiplies, and in fact, a new recruit is added to the team. One commentator puts it like this, out of one pair, there came two, right? Because Barnabas and Paul, there's the one pair. Now Barnabas and John Mark go off, and now Paul and Silas go off. Um, Now, let's just be very clear. Let's not take this as an excuse for Christian quarreling. Oh, I can fight with with anybody I disagree with, and it can get as intense as I want. I don't care if our relationship blows up because look what God did with Paul and Barnabas. I'm sure he will uh, bless me and my ministry through my quarreling. No, no, no. Now, this is, just pre, uh, this is not prescriptive for us. It's just descriptive. It's just showing us how good God's providence is and that he can take our mess and make things wonderful out of them, but it doesn't mean that we should go and make a mess of things intentionally. We're surprised in the way that God can turn something that seems so dire into something that actually ends up benefiting the church in amazing ways. So this one team goes on to Cyprus, Barnabas and Mark, and Paul and Silas, they go and they, they, they retrace those um, churches, that, that previous journey as Paul wanted to do. They visit the churches that they had planted years earlier to check on their spiritual health. And, and here's where Paul encounters a young man named Timothy, Uh, A young man who, along with his mother, had been converted years earlier when Paul had been there the first time with Barnabas. This man had come to faith under Paul's preaching. Uh, This man, of course, is Timothy. And Timothy becomes Paul's greatest partner in ministry. Perhaps back then no one would have believed um, that anything could have been better than the original duo, Paul and Barnabas. But here's one of those rare instances where the sequel is actually better than the original. With Paul and Timothy now, Timothy is commended in Paul's letters more than any other person. In fact, he co-wrote six of those letters. He's called Paul's true child in the faith, as close to his heart as a son. And even uh, before joining Paul's uh, mission and his ministry and his team, we're told in verse 2 of chapter 16 that uh, Timothy was well spoken of by the brothers. He developed a reputation Uh, for being a faithful and a useful um, individual to the church. And so Paul wants to bring him along with Silas as they go and they preach the gospel in more Jewish synagogues. But then Paul does something that's astounding. He has Timothy, who is the son of a Greek. His his mother is a Jewish uh, believer. 
but his father's a Greek, and that means that Timothy would not have been circumcised. And so what does Paul do? He has him circumcised. We read in in verse 3 with very little commentary. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him, and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So there's uh, one, one reason given as to why Paul wanted him circumcised. Because they were going into synagogues and uh, they would be preaching to Jews. And those Jews somehow knew Timothy or they knew of Timothy and they knew that he wasn't purely Jewish. They knew that his father was a Greek. They knew even if his mother was a believer and even if he was a believer, he was not circumcised. And so what they would have thought of Timothy is that he was a, a, uh, a proselyte, a, a, a Jew who had come into um, the, the um, place of God, the holy place of worship in the synagogue, and yet was violating the Abrahamic covenant by not being circumcised. That would have been a distraction, to say the least. That would have hindered Paul's ministry. But here's what's really puzzling about the whole thing. Paul has Timothy circumcised while on mission from the church in Jerusalem to deliver a letter to the believers to let them know you don't need to be circumcised to be a Christian. That's what they're, that's what they're going to do right there. That, that was the whole point of, of the mission. Deliver this letter. And they got commissioned in Acts 15. Let the people know, the believers know, they don't need to be circumcised to be received into the family of God. And Paul has that letter in hand when he says... We're going to circumcise Timothy. What is going on here? We're learning something of Paul's philosophy of ministry, and it would be a good one for us to model, and that is this. Are you ready? Here's his ministry. Always let the main thing be the main thing. Always major on the majors. If there is something that is going to keep people from hearing the gospel... From hearing the good news, which converts, which saves people, Paul is willing to do almost anything to remove that obstacle so that people can hear the message. Uh, There is, there should be, I should say, there should be only one thing that offends people about the gospel, and that is the gospel itself. There is offense enough in, um, in, the doctrines that are embedded in the gospel, that is the lordship of Christ, the depravity of man, the necessity of faith and not works. There's enough there to affront the sensibilities of natural man without us uh, adding our own offenses by the ways in which we present that gospel, the ways in which we act, the ways in which we behave. Paul wants people to hear Jesus. And if there's a stumbling block for them to hear Jesus, he will remove it. We learn more of this philosophy in 1 Corinthians. Let's turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Here we kind of, we can kind of look into the mind of Paul in Acts 16. We can know what he's thinking here. Look at 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 19. He says, For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all. Why? That I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. 
to those who under the law to those under the law I became as one under the law though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law to those outside the law I became as one outside the law not being outside the law of God but under the law of Christ why that I might win those outside the law to the weak I became weak why that I might win the weak I have become all things to all people why that by all means I might save some. Paul says, I'm willing to do almost anything, even if it gets me a very small something. He's speaking sort of tongue-in-cheek, right? To win some, to get that small something, is not really small in the eyes of the Lord. We need to believe that too. That to go to such great lengths, even if it just means one conversion, is well worth it. Think of the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one. He comes home rejoicing. And so if the means don't compromise the message, Paul is willing to do a lot. But at the same time, the moment that the message is compromised, he draws a line in the sand. And so we read in Galatians 2, if you want to turn there, verse 3. Galatians 2 verse 3, the exact opposite situation happens with Titus than that which happened with Timothy. In that context, there were Judaizers who were critiquing Paul's ministry, and they were saying that he was not being faithful because he was not commanding people to be circumcised. They're saying, Paul, you need to circumcise everyone if they're going to be faithful follower of God. And he says, no, if you're going to add that if you're, gonna, if you're going to insist upon that, if you're going to say you can't be saved without it, then I'm going to, to flaunt my freedom in front of you, so to speak. I'm going to prove to you you don't need it. And so what do we read in Galatians 2? Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they could bring us into slavery, to them we didn't yield in submission for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So here's the difference. For people who were insisting that to be a Christian, you had to look like a Jew, Paul says, no way, no way. If you think to be a Christian, you need to look like a Jew, no way, I'm not going to budge. But at the same time, here's the converse. For people who wouldn't even hear the message of the gospel, who wouldn't even hear about Christianity, unless you looked like a Jew, Paul says, to the weak, I became like the weak. Why? That I might win some. So I wonder if you're willing to major on the majors with Paul. In my estimation, we see actually some spiritual maturity in in the apostle, even from just the previous chapter, right? Because at the end of chapter 15, he let a disagreement hinder the mission and the message. And here he has learned to put aside differences and put aside disagreements in order that the mission and the message can go forth. Does your, does your life reflect that kind of maturity where you're able, for the sake of the gospel and the greater good, to focus on those things that matter the most? Do you haggle with people over minor issues? Do you cling to wrongs that were done to you by maybe fellow church members years and years ago, which then fractures and, and frustrates our collective witness, our collective testimony, our fellowship. That's not majoring on the majors. But what's the result when we, when we follow Paul in this way? 
verse 5 tells us, the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. God blesses the mission abundantly. It's a wonderful thing. Paul and his new team are proving to be effective ministers of the gospel. But then, after this high point in ministry, another surprise comes, and it's another discouraging one, and that is that the way forward in this mission is continually closed off to Paul and to his team. They wanted to continue on into Asia, but their plans are twice thwarted. We are not told in what ways the door of ministry was closed, but we're told specifically that it was done by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 7. It says uh, that they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Verse 6, we're told the Holy Spirit forbid them from going to Asia. Now the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them to go into Bithynia. It's the same spirit. There's a really important theology here. The one spirit, the third member of the Trinity, is the spirit of Jesus, and that his job is to point us to Jesus. His job is to empower us to serve Jesus, to grow the church of Jesus. And the spirit is that one in particular who guides our steps along the path of life, the one who guides us along God's providence and God's Providence sometimes has roadblocks in front of us, a closed door where we want an open one. That can be frustrating, can it? But again, our view of God will help us weather such discouragements. Here's what we need to to ask ourselves, or here's where we need to be honest with ourselves. When God closes a door in, in my life, maybe towards a certain career move, Uh, with a certain relationship, a hopes in a particular ministry, some dream or goal. What 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 is your what's your dream? What's your what's your goal? What 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 things are you driving after that perhaps God up to this point has not yet allowed? Maybe it's you know some some dream of of moving on in the in the workplace or or strengthening some relationship that hasn't worked out or or conceiving and bearing children being a being a parent in, in in some fashion or whatever it is if you find that you are near despair when that door closes what does it mean it means that your heart is set on the outcome and not set on god but when our hearts are set on god then no matter the outcome we're not shaken we can't be moved because the, things, the thing on, want, uh, on which we have set our heart, God himself, he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He is never a closed door to us. He himself is an open door to us, always. We always have him. So when my heart is set on God, I'm able to handle any outcome, even if it seems like a disappointing one. Now to say that, When God closes one door, he opens up another. It's extremely cliche, and yet it's still true. It is true. And uh, former baseball player Rick Ankeel is a perfect example. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the story of of Ankeel. He was a pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals from 1999 to 2001, when all of a sudden, in 2001, he was unable to throw strikes consistently anymore. They call it, if you've never heard of this, and you want a, a good laugh, YouTube, the yips. They call it the yips, which is the sudden inability 
to throw strikes across the plate. And at one point uh, in a postseason game in 2001, he threw five wild pitches in a single inning. Wild pitches, like over the backdrop, stuff that, you know, literally, Jonathan, I could do better than this. And here's a professional pitcher. And so, of course, he's cut from the team, and they send him back to the minor leagues to work on his game, uh, to improve his form. And he's there for years, and it's not working. And so he realizes his pitching career is over. And so instead he pivots, and he starts trying to uh, improve his form as an outfielder. And he's thinking, if I'm going to make a living, i just I got to give up pitching. And so he moves to being an outfielder. Six years later, he returns to the same team, the St. Louis Cardinals, as an outfielder. And something amazing happens. He has the greatest throwing arm that that team, really any other team, had ever seen from an outfielder. And you can watch the videos of Ricky and Keel, but it's amazing what starts to happen is that he is able to throw people out at home plate without using the cutoff from center field. And what happens is something nobody would ever expect. For a man who could not throw a strike from 60 feet away now starts throwing strikes from 250, 300 feet away. It's an amazing story, and you watch it. My brother was talking to me about it. He says, you just hope that man's a Christian. You know, this amazing turnaround. Who's the one who... Who affected that change for him? Of course, it's God. But this is the way that God works. And it's what he does with Paul and Silas and Timothy here. Actually, also Luke. Did you notice it it changes in the narration to the first person, plural? Uh, Verse 10, Paul had a vision immediately. We saw it. Now Luke is inserting himself. So suddenly Luke is part of the team too. But here they are. Asia seems like the next, the, the most logical next step. It's right there. And God's saying, no, no. And all of their attempts to go to Asia, it's like throwing a wild pitch across home plate, even from 60 feet away. And instead, he sends them the whole way to Europe, to Greece, where now they're going to be throwing strikes even further away from home. And here, this trip across the Aegean Sea into modern-day Europe is our final surprise of our text. Asia seemed like the obvious next choice But they had no idea what God would have in store for them when they got to Macedonia, Greece, when they got to Philippi with a woman named Lydia. John Stott explains the significance like this. Listen to this. He says, with the benefit of hindsight, knowing that Europe became the first Christian continent and was until fairly recently the main base for missionary outreach to the rest of the world, we can see what an epoch-making development this was. It was from Europe that in due course the gospel fanned out to the great continents of Africa, Asia, North America, Latin America, and in so it reached the ends of the earth. Friends, the eventual worldwide missions effort that would go out from Europe begins in Acts chapter 16. How cool is that? Now Macedonia, Greece, Definitely needs help. Paul has this vision of this guy saying, come over and help us. They clearly need help because when they get there, there's not even a synagogue. For there not to be a synagogue means there aren't 10 faithful men who would be willing to gather together and worship. That was the quorum needed, according to Jewish custom, to establish a synagogue. Instead of a synagogue, what do they find? They find a women's prayer group. It's not what they were expecting. I'm sure they're thinking, why did we come the whole way here? There's not even a a synagogue. There's no place for us to establish a church, no core group. And yet what happens? They meet Lydia, a well-known, prominent businesswoman in town, a seller of purple fabric, which 
was popular from her native Thyatira. She's already a worshiper of God, the text tells us. Um, she is she's not Jewish, but she's a, a Gentile who believes in Yahweh, who believes in the one true God. That's what verse 14 says, a worshiper of God. She's not a pagan, but she's not also at the same time she hasn't heard of the gospel of Jesus, so we can't call her Christian either. And of course, we know, really, even if she knows of this one true God, the only way to get to him is through Jesus. So she needs him. So the God that she knew was real was now about to become real to her. She knew he was out there, but she hadn't taken hold of him yet. That's going to happen through the ministry of Paul. This is how Luke puts it in verse 14. Look there with me. The Lord opened her heart. I want to say very clearly to you tonight, or today, that's what needs to happen to you. That's what needs to happen to all of us. Our hearts need to be opened. And it's something only the Lord can do. That's how Luke puts it. The Lord opened her heart. Only the Lord can do it, but he does do it when we ask. Puritan Matthew Poole says it like this. This was the Lord's work according unto what our Savior himself said, that no man can come to me except that the Father draws him. And yet, we may, in, in a sense, open our heart, especially when in a sense of our inability and, and of our need, we implore the free grace of God, and we engage him to work in us according to his good pleasure. But otherwise, creating a clean heart within us is a power beyond our nature. Heart work is God work. That's what the Lord does for Lydia. It's what he can do for you. And when the heart changes, note how everything changes. Lydia gets a new heart. Her heart is opened, and now she gets a new community. A new community is opened up to her. So she's baptized into the church of Christ, her and her household. Along with a new community, she gets a new desire to show acts of mercy and kindness. You see how she prevails upon the apostles to to show hospitality to them. Come and stay in my home. Now I get I get what the gospel's all about, how God has opened up his eternal home to me. I want to open up my home to you. She's changed. Paul and his team, well, they thought all they were finding was one closed door after another. But God had been consistently turning their disappointments into delights. And so a closed door in Asia leads to an open heart in Macedonia, in Philippi, with this woman named Lydia. And as she is changed, the angels in heaven rejoice. She is just the first fruits, but there is more to come, countless more, in Philippi, in Greece, and in Europe beyond. But it begins with the change of this woman. And maybe we should close today with the most surprising news of all. God can change people, and God can change you. He can. Does that sound too surprising? Does that sound too too great of an effort, too difficult a work for God to change people. Paul, Paul experienced this change as he ends the near as he ends nears the end of his of his life. Second Timothy, the last letter he writes moments before his execution. Do you know how he ends that epistle? His final request on death row: Send John Mark to me, for he is useful in my ministry. Well, that's a change, isn't it? 
Now, what changed, Paul or John Mark? I know the answer. They both did. They both did. How do I know they both changed? Because when you're a Christian, when you have the Spirit of God, this is what he promises you. You will change. You will sin less today than you did last year. It might not feel like it. In fact, I assure you, it won't feel like it because that's part of the paradox of change, that the holier you get, the more sinful you feel. Your sin becomes all the more odious to you and heinous to you. That's change. God changed Paul and John Mark so that at the end of his life, he's thinking, there's only one thing I want. I want John Mark to come and help me in ministry. That's not what Acts 15 looked like. What a change. When God comes to us in the gospel, he always, always meets us where we're at, friends. He always meets us where we're at, but he never, ever leaves us there. Isn't that a surprise? Paul calls it a mystery. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall all be changed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the work of Paul and Barnabas and John, Mark, and Silas, and Timothy, and Luke, these early missionaries to whom we owe so much. Who would have thought that what seemed like a disappointing closed door in Asia would turn out to be the beginning of worldwide fruit in Europe and beyond? We are ourselves heirs of, of, of this chapter And we thank you that as the gospel goes forth in proclamation, comes into our hearts and it changes us from one degree of glory to the next. We thank you for your mystery, the mystery of your providence, the mystery of the gospel. Although we cannot comprehend it fully, we know that you are planning all things for our good and in that we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.